Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today to have the Nick Quint. We're going to be talking about Paul and the Trinity in the New Testament and all kinds of like super fun stuff in that area. Uh, Nick, what's up, man? How are you? I'm great, brother. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, been, a, been a long time coming, but it's good to be back with you. Yeah, I know. I feel like I'm like, we've been talking for a while now, but we haven't like done anything like this in a minute. So I'm really like pumped for today. Um, yeah, to talk about like the Trinity and whatnot. So you want to talk a little bit, Nick, about like who you are, what you do, things like that? Sure. Yeah, I'm a slow, slowly going along PhD student in New Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne down in Australia. Uh, I have a master's from Fuller, uh, currently husband of one wife and father to one little boy. And currently a uh, pastor at First Baptist Church of Claremont here in Southern California. So part-time pastor, full-time husband and dad, and very, very part-time PhD student. So trying to balance all of those and failing absolutely miserably. That's awesome, Nick. Um, I do want to apologize to everyone. The audio might be a little fuzzy at times. We've been like working through issues as we've been rolling, um, but we're just going to roll for it. Hopefully you're here for like the content of like Paul and the Trinity and not just like some perfect like, like lighting your audio or whatnot, because we're definitely failing there. Um, so Nick, do you want to talk a little bit about like what got you interested in this topic and thinking about like Paul and the Trinity? Yeah, a, a part of it, uh, a big part of it came from, or at least it started when the, the huge debate over women's ordination was coming around, right? Everyone's debating about whether or not women can be pastors and all this sort of stuff. And the Trinity was kind of at the center, or at least kind of a related ancillary sort of topic, where people would argue that the son is subordinate to the father and all this sort of stuff. And then you had that kind of, you know, if you tie that to women's ordination, and then it's a fact that you have a Trinitarian basis for excluding women from ministry or some folks would say, well, because the persons of the Trinity are completely equal and all that sort of stuff, you have no grounds to exclude women from ministry. And so it became this weird kind of debate where the Trinity was kind of punted around like a football and people trying to get their, uh, trying to, you know, out, out Jesus juke the, you know, out Trinity juke the other. And that, I mean, I got interested in that. Um, one of the things I thought was so interesting was how, um, how, how Paul specifically will uh, sound very much like a, a first century Jew. And then he'll turn around and say something like, boy, that sounds awfully lot, uh, an awful lot like the stuff we think about in church or we, we, uh, we, we preach about or we talk about. And so uh, Paul and the Trinity has always been an interesting subject to me, just, uh, just as, as a Christian, as someone who's involved in, in preaching and in pastoral ministry, and in hopefully in some small way, the academy, there seems to be this very um, neglected view of the Trinity that when we talk about the Trinity, it's usually related to politics or some ancillary theological debate, and it's not seen as sort of a, a central theological doctrine for, for Christians. And so that's kind of where the, the debate, I got interested in it because it was an ancillary topic that people kind of kept bringing in. And then I was like, well, let's actually look at what the New Testament seems to teach on this. And, you know, it teaches a lot, not some stuff, or at least it teaches uh, a lot about it. Uh, it doesn't teach everything we might want, but such is the nature of theology and reflection and exploration. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's super cool, Nick. I appreciate you and your work and what you're doing. So let's dive into this. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is like the relationship between like history and theology. Um, so looking at Paul here and we're trying to think about like, what is he thinking about like God and the Trinity and whatnot? Um, so as like a theologian, like when you're looking at this topic, like what is this relationship between history and theology? And like, how is this going to be important in the dialogue today? Yeah, the, the big issue with, with uh, history and theology is um, on my channel, I had on um, Andy, Dr. Andy Johnson out of uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary, and he's big on uh, what's called theological interpretation of scripture. And basically that the joke is you basically just read the Bible like a, like a Christian. You read it with the, the history of the Christian tradition, you read the Bible that way. And then uh, I asked him a lot about what's the relationship between history and theology, you know, and, and, you know, what, how does that all work? And one of his answers was, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, essentially corresponds to, well, the gospel writers and Paul were engaged in history. They were living history. You know, Jesus was risen in history, um, but they didn't history they were, but they're not telling us purely historical facts. They're telling us the meaning of the fact or the meaning of why this happened or the significance of why this happened. Um, and so for them, History and theology weren't seen as disparate little things that, you know, we compartmentalize often. You know, I have my, my Sunday habits and then I have my Monday through Saturday habits. And, you know, for Christians, the rhythm running joke is I'm a, I'm a heathen most days, but on Sunday I'm a good person. For, for them, it was never a sense of you can do this thing and not this thing. You can talk about this thing, but not this thing. Everything was very integrated, very um, related to one another. 
And so when they talked about events in history, whether it was, you know, for a second couple of Jews, it was the, um, the fall or, or the exodus or the, the exile or the various aspects of the exile or fallen angels, everything was contingent on something happened. And here's the significance of what that means for us. You know, why, you know, here's the meaning of the event or here's the meanings of the event in dialogue with, with one another. And so I think for discussing the, the doctrine of the Trinity in, in Christian theology, there's a, a deep sense in which um, we recognize the historical particularity of the New Testament. You know, they're not writing uh, with any sort of frame of reference for microphones not working or Ethernet cables or Wi-Fi or Amazon Prime or air conditioning or, or anything like that. They're not writing with those things in mind. They don't have that world. They, they're just not, that, that's just not how they thought. They didn't have access to these things. But and so they, they have that particular kind of focus on stuff. They're first century people. They're writing in a first century worldview and a first century lens. And Mike Heiser actually brought, brings that out. May he rest in peace, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, brought that out brilliantly, just the, the, the weirdness of the first centuries, right? The first century of the church and, and you know, all the ancient history in Israel. But then we also recognize that uh, history is interpreted. History has significance. History has symbolic power. History has meaning. And when you think of an event in, in the past, you, you think about what's the meaning of this, what's the purpose of this, what's, what's behind this sort of thing. And for the early Christians, they, and for us as, as modern interpreters, we look both at what the New Testament taught in its particular context with an eye to what we've received as Christians, you know, the creeds, you know, the famous creeds, you know, our, our Christian history, our denominations, our, our upbringings. And we kind of put those together and go, okay, how do these uh, mutually and and respectfully kind of integrate. Uh, how do these things work together? And so for me as a theologian, my hope is that we will never go beyond the New Testament into fanciful areas where the New Testament authors would be like, oh, no, burn this whole thing down, but also um, recognize that we are interpreting things theologically with whatever theology we have as our background. So for me, the, the relationship is very integrated when it comes to history and, and theology, and that's why you can have the the, de- the seeds of the of the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, specifically in Paul, um, without it being fully worked out. You know, because Paul, as as I mentioned before, and other people, Paul was much more like a John Wesley than a John Calvin. He was a pastor. He was moving around. He was doing stuff. He was concerned with holiness and all these things, and he wasn't as concerned with articulating a systematic doctrine. You know, Calvin was very much about systematic doctrine and, and categories and stuff and that sort of stuff. And so I think we need to just be aware of the framework of of the ancient ancient world as well as our own framework as well so for me that's why the relationship is so important okay so when you're thinking about the relationship between history and theology um what you're trying to do nick is say like hey we need to go back and think like what was first century paul thinking like these other people and when they're Mm -hmm. going back and looking at the relationship between history and theology they see something very integrated they're looking at things as like the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple or the return. And they're saying like, these aren't just like historical events, like you memorize the date and like you have your nice little grade for school. Um, But there's theological meaning and significance happening here. We can look back at history and see like, oh, these are things that like God God is doing. And like, there's meaning behind like why these things are happening. Yeah, exactly. History, history has to be interpreted. History is not brute fact. History requires some sort of interpretation um, what is the meaning? I mean, for example, with the, uh, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, right? No, no first century Jew, when they heard that, was like, okay, well, that's a fact I need to know about. Okay. And they go on with their daily life in the diaspora or in Jerusalem or, or in Rome. No, that was a devastating thing. That was the, the toppling of the Jew, of Jewish identity. That was an erasure of, of, of hundreds of and thousands of years of history, you know, of identity, of worship, of, of culture. And so, um, Every, every historical event has meaning. And that's why uh, first century Jews, especially were looking at the, the, uh, at, their old, at their ancient stories, those old stories in the Old Testament, as well as the early Christians looking at going, okay, where do we find Jesus in scripture? Because if Jesus was doing all these things and saying he was involved in all these things and part of history and he's a fulfillment of Israel's history, then where do we see him in Israel's history? If the early Christian interpreters ran screaming back to their text because they're good Jews, they're good Jewish thinkers. Like Paul is going, like, well, where is he in all of this? Where, where, if this, if Jesus is the the end of the law, you know, for example, or the fulfillment of these sorts of, of prophecies or or texts, then um, how does this all work? And so you can see the beginning stages of historical and theological integration of 
putting these, trying to put these things together in a way that was comprehensible and ultimately transformative uh, ethically and morally for them as well. So that's a, a long way of saying, yes, you asked the exact right question. You're exactly right. <laughs> wow, you're so kind. Um, so they're looking back and they're asking, like, when was Jesus in all this? Um, or where was Jesus in all of this? Um, so what were they thinking then, like, about, like, a, a first century Jew uh, thinking about history? What about the things, like, very disconnected from, like, maybe, like, Israeli history? Because um, obviously we talked about things like the temple and whatnot. Like, were they thinking about these things that are happening and say, like, obviously they don't know Britain's a place, but, like, far beyond, like, the reaches of their world and, like, did they see a connection there? Do, do you have any idea about that? They had, uh, first century Judaism had a very cosmic view of things, generally speaking. They, 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 they're very aware of the boots on the ground, the politics on the ground. You know, you can think of Jesus walking through, through, um, through, the, through ancient Israel and he sees Roman soldiers. So it's like, okay, he sees Roman coin. You know, he see, you know he, he's aware of all of these things, you know, that, that happens. So he's aware of a Roman empire out there, probably a capital city and all that. Paul's aware of the furthest reaches, you know, as he says in Romans, he's aware of the furthest reaches of Spain, you know, and he's, so he's, they're aware that there are bigger, that there's a big world out there. And that's part of uh, Paul's missionary journey to the Gentiles is herald to the Gentiles is I got to go where the, I got to go where the gospel isn't. And that means getting outside of all of these things and going as far as I can into places unknown and untraveled. And so for a lot of them, they, they were, Theologically, when it comes to principles of interpretation, they're they're very similar in that they they were very aware of how big the world was, how much how, how crazy the world was, how um, complex the world was, and you can see it, for example, in their treatment of demons and principalities and powers. You know, rebel angels, rebel figures, um, uh, entities in the world that have some sort of a power and agency. Um, but also deeply aware of the hierarchy of the systems, you know, of the world, you know, um, how, how there's different tiers, there's different heavens, there's different, all these sorts of things. So they were deeply aware of just the cosmic apocalyptic scope of the world, you know, just that this is a big place. They may not have thought it's as big as we now think it is, but they could look up into the heavens and be like, there's so much in this world. And they're so aware of all those things that they give us, their reflections give us um, so much to play with and, and explore that um, I, I find very little of what they say to be so completely outlandish at the end of the day. It's, it's, it's one of those, there's nothing new under the sun as Solomon has said, or someone, someone, a true, you know, maybe Solomon said, if we you know, go the historical route of that. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of my broad answer to a, a very good question. Mm. So Jews at the time were very aware of like how big the world is. Um, and they were like, Oh, there's like this, like, place called North America and whatnot but they were like they they were very aware like that the world is very big and it's a lot bigger than like this little pocket in Israel um and like Judaism is going to encompass like all the world not just like their own little uh yeah yeah and, and they're aware of Rome they're aware of travel they're aware of that there's these far nations the Gentiles you know they're, they're very aware of all these things were they aware of, of North America as you said probably not but if you said there's another another continent out there or land mass they'd be like oh okay they wouldn't have been like oh really you know kind of the that you know mm -hmm. uh, they, you'd be more likely to get a mm -hmm, look from them if you said oh yeah, there's this thing called wi-fi and they just said mm -hmm. what <laughs> that that they'd have a little more difficult time kind of grappling with but in terms of just how big the world is and intermediary figures angels you know angelic figures stuff like that they, they would have had no problem with that in fact it was it's in the water it, it's what they they see all over their scriptures and in human experience mm, okay yeah that's really helpful nick and i appreciate you kind of laying out this view where history and theology are very interconnected. Um, we aren't doing like history or theology. Like they're very, they come together. Um, I think it's going to play well into thinking about Paul. So we're looking at and Paul. If I can interject real quick, mm -hmm. there, there's, there's no reason why I'm not saying a Christian thing. I'm saying it with a Christian infusion, but you can, you can be a, an atheist or a Hindu and look at it and go, Oh yeah. History for early, for early, the first century Jewish writers, they, they're clearly theological. They clearly have a worldview. They clearly have thoughts about God that are structured and ordered in some sense and all that sort of stuff. And they had say church scriptures and all that. So it's like, I'm not making a distinctly Christian claim about the relationship between history and theology, although I am saying it with a Christian distinctive in terms of what I think it means for us. I think a, a secular person or a Hindu or Buddhist could easily affirm the baseline principle of that these are in the ancient world far more integrated than than often we do it today. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but just offer a little bit more nuance to what I was saying. Okay, yeah, th th that is very helpful. So thank you for that, Nick. Um, mm -hmm. So as we get into Paul, like, what is Paul thinking about Jesus? As we get into like Paul and the Trinity, um, broadly speaking, like, how did Paul think about Jesus? 
Yeah, and with, with we don't have a Paul probably never met. We might say the historical Jesus or the earthly Jesus. Um, although there has been a revival of a, a theory put out by, um, or at least most recently by Stan Porter, that he he postulates that. Um, and I don't want to get, I'm not going to, I don't want to butcher because I haven't read it. It's been a little while since I've read it, but essentially he argues very strongly that Paul probably met Jesus and is with a Jesus earthly life, so to speak, and also probably engaged with him. Um, but um, I don't have the book in front of me and I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the details. So I don't want to get that wrong and I don't want to overspeak. But um, in any sense, G what Paul believed about Jesus is, is very complex and very multifaceted. There's lots of different um ways that Jesus speaks about Jesus. And one of the things when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity is very often um, we go, well, we just need to affirm the deity of Christ and therefore we get the Trinity. And I see a lot of this in kind of online Trinitarian apologetics is that our focus is we prove the deity of Christ. It's a fact that we've got a doctrine of the Trinity, you know, and that, that the whole focus is on is Jesus divine. It's like, well, um, of course Paul thought he was divine. That's, I think, probably not under dispute is how divine was he and in what sense divine was he? You know, in what sense is he divine? And Mike Bird's got a really big book that came out with Baylor University Press called Jesus Amongst, Among the Gods, I think is what it's called. And it's a fascinating book just on divine ontology in the ancient world, Greco-Roman, Jewish, and just how, what did gods do? How were gods thought of? What did gods, how did gods act? What, what came with being a god? You know, where does Jesus kind of find himself in all of that? And so it's not a book on the Trinity. But if, uh, if when we're doing work on the Trinity, that'd be an excellent book. And it's a massive, massive book, but it's a really helpful book. Um, but one of, so one of those things is we see that how Paul considered Jesus uh, is given the, the, the title Kurios, you know, Lord. Um, he's also uniquely tied to Israel as well. Um, Paul in Romans is very keen to tie into the Davidic line in Romans 1. He's very keen to tie into the history of Israel in Romans 9. Um, it says, Interestingly enough, seems to straight up call Jesus Theos or God. I know everyone debates that passage, Romans 9, 5, but um, I go with Robert Jewett and uh, many other scholars, again, say someone like uh, the late and great Jimmy Dunn, that argues that Romans 9, 5 does have Paul calling Jesus Theos, God, uh, who is God overall, forever blessed. Um, it's not a certain, you know, you can't argue 100%, you know, that the text is calling Jesus God, but what you have there in Romans 9, 1 through 5 is a very strong link between history, the history of Israel, the fathers, the worship, and all these sorts of, you know, covenant, you know, the covenants and all these sorts of things, kind of the, a, a very telescoped, compressed telling of the Old Testament, ending with Jesus or the Messiah being called God overall. And if that reading is correct, uh, the Jesus is, is God reading, and I think it, it, I'm 80% certain it is, um, then you have Jesus being the absolute fulfillment of Israel's story and also kind of the capstone to Israel's story um, as the one who was involved from the beginning of Israel's story. And so that implies some sort of, it implies preexistence, it, it implies agency and it implies activity in the world um, beyond humanity and beyond human fleshness. And so you get this, you begin to see kind of, okay, Paul's kind of tying these threads together a little bit. It doesn't give you, um, the joke is Paul gives you plenty to get to Nicaea, but he doesn't give you, um, he's not Nicaean in the sense of giving you an exact formulation. You know what I mean? But he gives you enough, enough material here to go, okay, there's, again, that's why history and theology are linked, is that history becomes a grand theological claim about the involvement of the God of Israel with God's people, Israel. And that's where the Messiah comes from. The Messiah is talked about being designated or declared son of God in power in Romans 9.1 as kind of installed uh, kind of uh, presented to the world as as the king of overall contra Caesar contra the Roman Empire. Um, then you've got and then you have triadic texts, you know, that are a little easy, you know, texts that give a benediction to Father, Son, and Spirit, you know, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Matthew text. So you have those, you know, probably about half a dozen texts or so like that, half a dozen plus texts where Jesus, Father, and Spirit are kind of tied together in terms of benedictions or grace giving and stuff like that. Um, but just in terms of how Jesus was was looked at, I think that Romans 9 text is instructive because it distinctly ties history and events uh, that are uniquely uh, uh, Israel, uh, uniquely tied to the story of Israel and the Old Testament, and with the recognition that Jesus was somehow, as Theos, as God, uh, involved in all of that from the beginning. And so I think that's a very strong just kind of point just to emphasize that that 
And then, of course, the question is, what is God? What does it mean to call him God? Well, you know, because if Jesus is called God in Romans 9, 5, then, well, what kind of God is he? <laughs> you know, that's a big question. Um, and I'll do a little injustice to it by trying to answer a little bit, but grain of salt or mountain of salt in this case. But whatever God is in Romans 9, 5, for example, it must be tied to the history and story of Israel. And if that's the case, because uh, if that's the case, then you have the identity of the God of Israel, including the historical messianic figure of Jesus. And if that's the case, then Jesus's activity as Messiah constitutes a role in which God has acted through him, but not just in his humanness, because God, the son, has been involved in this for a very long time. And so you have political ramifications for that and theological and all those sorts of things. But if we take that just kind of as a, a device of, for further exploration, we can see that whatever we say about Jesus as God, um, we must tie it to Israel's story and we must tie it uh, also to what Jesus did. It's not enough just to say Jesus is God. It, well, what did Jesus do as God? And so that's, that's, I mean, there's many ways we can go with that. We can look at other texts, but I figured that would be just a good one just to kind of give kind of a, a big picture kind of uh, explanation of where we're coming from. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Thoughts, questions, pushback? Yeah, so I'm trying to just like understand the big picture, like when we're looking at like Paul and the historical Jesus, Nick, um, mm-hmm. because you talked a lot about like Romans 9, um, where it says like where Paul, like if you read the ESV, it says like that, like to him, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Um, so you drew drawing from Romans nine. Um, but obviously like Paul talks a lot more about Jesus and other things. So you talked about him like being like tied like deeply to like Israel's history. Um, him, him being the Lord, whatever that means. Um, mm-hmm. so like what, it, like, what is the broad, like, I'm thinking about those like little, like, I don't know if you know those little like biographies they make for like, fourth graders of it's like who is like harriet tubman or who is mm-hmm. i don't know barack obama or who is like any of these people they're making these biographies about like if paul's writing one of those for fourth graders like what is he putting in there good question so he's putting in there that jesus was uh human so anthropos was flesh um jesus uh, a good way to, to characterize it um would be so if we look at say the the philippians to him right the uh, and I'll, I'll pull it up here just so i i don't speak out of turn because there's nothing worse than misquoting the Bible. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I'll, I'll give some, but basically I, and I'm reading from the new revised standard version. Um, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, um, who though he existed or being in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be, I think, depending on how you translate Harpagmas, um, held on for yourself or exploited, you know, acting with exploit, you know, acting with it like that. Um, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness and being found in appearance as a human. He humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God uh, exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so you have multiple images that we can talk about. You have multiple images of uh, form of God. Uh, you have images of slave and human likeness and human um, to the point where um, Jesus had to be human because he had to die. That's kind of one of Paul's running jokes in the book of Acts as well. Um, so Jesus is flesh. Jesus is human. Jesus was a man. Um, he uh, was also existing in the form of God before his birth. Um, he, uh, humili- it's often translated as humbled himself, but humi- humility himself, he poured himself out. Um, by taking the form of a slave. So that tells us that there's agency there, there's um, character there, that the God of the universe basically became a slave when he had all the rights and privileges in heaven. So the reference there probably referred to him giving up his divine status, you know, his divine rights, you know, his equality with God, so to speak, and becoming a slave in, in the incarnation, becoming human. Basically, to be a slave is to be human, or to be human is to be a slave in kind of Paul's conception of anthropology. And so... Um, then you have Jesus Christ being Lord, uh, which is a title that is often referred, uh, used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament for God or Yahweh. And so you have kind of, do, you have this master story, as Michael Gorman calls it, where you have, it's almost a V-shape. You have um, the pre-incarnate Christ equal to the, you know, having equality with the Father, giving it up, becoming human, being born in human likeness. 
and then essentially ascending back to the father. Basically, the father gives him back the status that he he uh, he voluntarily gave up. And so you have uh, images of who Jesus is here in terms of um, pre-existence, so pre-incarnate. So and there's agency before his incarnation, telling us that there's something there. Um, you have um, his um, character. Uh, what is it, was it revealed about his character? That's going to be instead of coming down as Caesar, he came down as the opposite of Caesar, a slave. Um, and that he is the resurrected Lord, overall resurrected Lord. And so Lord there bearing probably the same title that is reserved for God in the Old Testament. And can also, be, I mean, it's one of those things where it can refer to just a normal political figure. It can, it can be a, a simple benediction, you know, hi, sir, you know, something like that. Lord can refer to that, my Lord, you know, sort of thing. Um, but here it probably doesn't denote that. It probably denotes something that's far beyond even uh, political representation or political figures like, say, Caesar, who would be Lord. And it brings him very close to what we would call the identity of the God of Israel. Um, and so, uh, that, I think, in a nutshell, and it, we haven't gotten to the Trinity yet, but we're thinking about the uh, about Jesus, what Jesus did, or what Paul thinks Jesus did. And you have a constellation of images of preexistence, probably uh, equality with the Father, um, intentional giving up of that equality for the sake of humanity, um, being called Lord, being called slave. Uh, John calls Jesus Lamb, you know, the Lamb of God. And so you have these kind of constellation of images that all seem to testify to the reality that Jesus was both human and divine, who had agency before the incarnation, has agency after the incarnation, um, died a sacrificial death, um, and those sorts of images where you kind of begin to construct an idea of Pauline Christology. Um, so I don't know if that helps kind of give kind of a, a 30,000 foot view. And there are other texts we could look at, but just I think that Philippians 2 is one of the better hymns just in terms of understanding Paul's Christological master story, how he, what he views the story of Jesus as being in terms of even the historical Jesus. Hmm. That's helpful, Nick. And I like how you're pointing like the scripture. Like, I love how like I can have like this like second tab on my computer and like, I'm not like playing Minecraft or anything. Like I'm like, looking at Philippians two with you. Um, and I'm thinking like, you're like, Hey, look here at Philippians two. And you can see like the 30,000 foot view of like what Paul thought about the story of Jesus looking at this Christ hymn here um, mm -hmm. in early the chapter two. And I think that's super helpful for people um because it shows like hey like when we're thinking about what paul thought about jesus we can look at what paul wrote and like help that mm -hmm. to like decipher like what do we what did he think about jesus and you can kind of look at that um anything else here about like jesus broadly speaking because i know like people might push back on you nick um maybe we want to save that for later like what do you anything else here uh, I mean, I mean, it's one of those where we can't talk about every single text, but we're, so we're, my goal here, my my sense is here's kind of a broad overview. Here's kind of a, a reasonable way of beginning to construct a doctrine of the Trinity from Paul. Um, this text is mirrored, and scholars, I think, agree on this. It's mirrored in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 um, and verse 9, for, and I'll read it. Uh, for you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ already, Lord Christ, um, the generous act that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Um, that text is often, among other texts, thought of as kind of a great exchange, that um, you have an exchange between God and humankind, and Christ is kind of the bridge between that, um, whether it's, example, um, and it's, it might be summed up best by, um, it's attributed to Athanasius, but it probably precedes him, is God became, or God became human so that humans might become God. That is that exchange, that transference of of what human of God basically becoming human flesh and us basically being recapitulated into what we're always meant to be. Um, as Second Peter talks about partakers in the divine nature, although not literally the divine nature, but basically participants and partakers in what God has called us to be. So a restoration of the image of God, so to speak. And here um, you have it's described as um, generous act. Uh, so Lord Jesus Christ. So you have. This generous act, that though he was rich, basically being probably a metonymy for um, what Philippians 2 talked about, that kind of uh, equality with God, that pre-existence, that, that safety, you know, that privilege in, in heaven, so to speak, um, gave it up uh, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. And some people push back and say this is referring to the earthly life of Jesus, but there's really no evidence that stonemasons were that rich. And Jesus is not depicted as being rich in the Gospels at all. In fact, he's entirely he's entirely dependent on the generosity of others, and so much so that people call you know make fun of him for it in a few instances. And so Jesus was never known as being wealthy, 
uh, fiscally wealthy. So I don't think that argument works very well. Um, I think my guess is you have the exchange of Jesus exchanging the, the status, rich being a, a Matani for say exalted status in heaven, um, giving that up and becoming poor, you know, humiliating himself, be, taking on impoverishment, um, being made human and he, taking the form of a human being so that we might participate in his glory that he brought to us. And then, you know, resurrection and sanctification and holiness are all a big part of that. And so you have this verse is a little more, it's far more compressed, but it kind of fixes that story a little bit, except we're more involved in the equation this time than, than the Philippians hymn. And so um, I, I think that's another interesting text about how Jesus or how Paul kind of conceived of their historical Jesus, but it's almost a misnomer to call the histor him the historical Jesus, because for Paul, I, I don't think there was just a historical Jesus. I think he thought there was someone that was much different than just a historical Jesus. He someone that preexisted, we might say the historical Jesus, who was Jesus, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm not saying it quite as precisely as I know my, I should, but I think you get kind of the idea of what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thanks, Nick. Um, so I'd love to kind of like get into Romans 8 now. Um, so you talked like a broad stroke of like Paul and like a Trinitarian like framework of what he's thinking about, like who Jesus is and whatnot. Um, so let's dive into like the Trinity now. Like we talked about Jesus. Um, how does Roman eight fit well within like this view of like the Trinity? Yeah. Well, what a lot of people like to do with, with the Trinity is we go looking for verses where, you know, um, this person's called God. And I mean, I did that a little bit, but with Romans nine, but my goal with that wasn't just to be, ah, Jesus is God, God of being, you know, kind of thing, but more just like, here's why he's called God. And here's how it relates to kind of what we talked about, about history and theology and his real story. So try to tie it together. Um, mm -hmm. But Romans 8 is not a text people usually think about when it comes to the Trinity because um, its context is interesting. And I mean, I'll, I'll read it for those who don't have it up. I'm reading again from the Revised Standard Version. I'll read probably from verse 1 to verse, I'll, I'll just go until I feel I need to stop. And by all means, Zach jump in and say, oh, too much or oh, not enough, or I have this mm -hmm. question. Never um, too much Bible, right? <laughs> it's a good Protestant answer. A little, a little uh, context to Romans 7, Paul has talked about um, uh, what I call prosopopoia, or what others call, pro, uh, what many call prosopopoia, that is speech and character. So Paul essentially in Romans 7 takes on the person in Adam speaking as the person of Adam, as, as a rhetorical device. And you have all this language about sin and death and the power of the law and being basically oppressed by sin and death and basically being trapped in that. And then Romans 8 is kind of the great declaration of, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Christ Jesus is the uh, location slash realm or reality. And I don't mean reality in a mystical sense. I mean, Jesus Christ literally embodied this and was it, and we are in him. And so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first thought is, okay, so who condemns us? Well, it's not the Father, it's not Jesus, it's not the Spirit. No, you know, the Trinity is not condemning us here. So this is probably a, a reference back to the principalities, the powers, the sovereign entities, you know, the, the things of the world that are, 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 are uh, uh, yeah, the principalities, perhaps we'll just go with that. Um, verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you, again, you have the, the contrast between spirit of life in Christ Jesus and law of sin and death. And so you have these beautiful little apocalyptic antitheses. Um, spirit of life is obviously contrasted with death. And, Christ Jesus being um, the one who sets you free from the law of sin. So already you have spirit and Christ kind of um, orbiting one another, fulfilling certain deeds, doing certain things um, in contradistinction to what we might call the unholy trinity of law, sin, and death. <laughs> you know, and so you have this kind of, um, you, you see the seeds of it beginning to kind of form already that the spirit is doing something, that the son is doing something. And so what God has, what God, so God jumps in, the, we'll say the father jumps in to be distinct, has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And so the father sends the son that is coordinate with the Philippians to him. That's coordinate with the second Corinthians eight, nine passage, you know, where the father sends the son that is very much Johannine language, so to speak. Um, but that the condemning sin in the flesh so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And what you'll notice throughout a lot of these passages in Romans 8, and we'll go for a little while, is that God is not always defined. There's a little 
you know, when they'll say God, uh, the, 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 we'll say, uh, this is an example, just the Holy Spirit makes us holy. God loves us very much. You know, it's like, well, okay, here is God, are God and the spirit the same thing? Or are they two distinct persons here? And in Romans and in Pauline theology, there's often not a clear line about where spirit begins, where Jesus ends and where God goes or where the father goes. And God seems to be kind of a more flexible term that can apply across person, if that makes sense. Um, and I think we'll see that as we go on. Um, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, so the Holy Spirit is basically um, sanctification par excellence, our, our holiness, our, the one who empowers us to righteousness. Um, set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. So again, mind, flesh, death, sin, law, you have all these sorts of um, unholy Trinitarian concepts, although it's much more than a Trinitarian, we'll call it like polytheism or some unholy polytheistic you know, kind of sinful stuff. Um, uh, so to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And so the spirit is kind of the generative source of life, both I think biological, because to be mentally healthy is to be, is, can often have, you know, really good fruits of biological health, you know, mental health and stuff like that, but also is life in an eschatological or apocalyptic sense that hope of resurrection, that looking forward to resurrection and peace. So whether that's political peace, mental peace, interpersonal peace, inner peace, existential peace, yes, I don't think that we should put a cap on that, but that is the spirits, what the spirit does. And often God is called the God of peace. You know, for example, in Romans 16, God is the God of peace. And so here you have these, again, you're being to see, at least I am, a constellation of images that rather than being disparate, almost feel like, um, is going to bad, but that, the rings around an atom, you know, the, the little atoms running around the big atom, there are all these little things moving around this one thing, uh, like little like moons around a planet. Um, for this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So basically hearkening back to the Adamic realm, that being in Adam is to be of sin and death, to be a slave, essentially. But, but you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. And so you begin to say, okay, spirit of God, is that God's spirit or is that, uh, how does that work functionally? You know what I mean? So you're in the spirit since the spirit of God dwells in you. So you have dwellingness already going on. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, so spirit of God, spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, as the spirit is in you, then the body is dead through sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So you see a massive amount of conflation here between persons, right? I'm not talking about breaking down distinctions. I'm talking about this harmonious activity between father, son, and spirit where there's dwellingness, there's resurrection life, there's life itself, there's righteousness, there's um, life itself, uh, spirit of God, spirit of Christ. You know, you're, you can see this framework emerging already between and it's, it's all about and it's going to be silly it's all about holiness it's all about um righteousness it's all about daily life if these are things we are meant to do and you know these are things that god calls us to do to put the, you know um and he keeps going on um so then brothers and sisters we're obligated not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if and i'm going to retranslate it i don't like the way they translate. i would say but if with the spirit so working in harmony with the spirit cooperating with the spirit if with if if uh, with the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the spirit is life, but also God calls us to put to death the sin, the deeds of the body. And so we're already involved in that pneumatic, that spirited life. But then he continues. For those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. For he did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So I don't know if you have questions or not, but I, I think just by reading the passage, just slowly and asking what these people or these persons are doing, we're beginning to see we don't have a systematic propositional formulation of the Trinity, but you can see it's like it's becoming very difficult just to kind of section these people off from one another. They're so mm -hmm. intimately related in, in the life of the church and in the life of the person. Um, and I've got another passage we can look at in Romans if I don't want to toss it back to you to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, so what I'd like to do, Nick, is I think this has been very helpful. 
I appreciate your very careful like exegesis and like trying to explain what's going on here. It's just kind of like just like overview things almost. Um, so if we're looking at like Romans eight, what you're trying to emphasize so far is like how like the Son and the Spirit and the Father and like God the Father are kind of like working together almost. Like there's different roles um, in what Paul's saying in Romans eight. Like it can't. It was very apparent to me. Like if you're looking at like verses two and three, where it says, "For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free." There's the Spirit. Um, free in Christ Jesus from the law of the sin of sin and death. There's the son. And for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And that's sending Jesus um, onto the earth. And like, there's the father, the son, and the spirit, like working together. Um, and if you're looking at that, then like, that's helping you to see like Paul's Trinitarian framework. Is that kind of what you're trying to say with this passage? Yeah. Uh, what you're seeing is there, there are three distinct persons doing very distinct things, but even then those distinction, those distinct acts are broken down. So you have, um, spirit of God dwells in you, but uh, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life back to your mortal bodies. Who also through his spirit that dwells in you. So you have the dwelling of the spirit. You have um, these three persons functioning in very complementary, mutually harmonious ways. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have Father, Son, and Spirit um, actively involved in, excuse me, in salvation, but also sanctification. Rather than saying this is all, some, all something the Spirit does or all something the Son does or all something God the Father does. Rather, you're seeing all three persons of what we'll call the Trinity actively engaged in the life of a believer or in the life of the church. Um, for example, if, you know, uh, God uh, adopts you, but here you have the language of the Spirit. But those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And then you have the Spirit of adoption. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're part of or if you're led by the Spirit of God, you're a child of God. But then you have the spirit basically bringing you to the father in a harmonious way because the father adopts those who come to him through the spirit. So you have father and spirit working together in the process of adoption. But even then, heirs language, right? In verse 17, if children, if we are children of God, then heirs, meaning we are recipients of the benefits of God's grace. We're recipients of eternal life, eschatological life. And, but we're also tied in with Christ there because we're joint heirs with Christ. We are tied into Christ's own fate, so to speak, his own resurrection life. And the spirit is the one who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children of God, then we're heirs of what the father is given to us because of Christ, who is the joint heir of what God has done. And so you see the overlapping, like working of all three persons for the purpose of redemption mm-hmm. and the purpose of sanctification and holiness. And it's all even tied to glory. So if, in fact, we suffer with him, with Christ, probably, that we may also be glorified with him. And so at the end of the day, we are given this this frame of reference of what spirit, son and father do in a way that if you pull one out, I don't know what Paul, I don't know if anything Paul says makes sense, because you have all of these things going on that they do. And um, I, I just think it's, it's, it's profoundly simple Trinitarian language that works, I think, very beautifully. Um, and it's also, I think, theologically very meaningful, you know, pastoral ministry as well. Um, but I don't want to keep talking. I want to get it back to you. Yeah. Okay. I think this is very helpful, Nick. Um, maybe do you want to just spend like a few more minutes talking about like what else in Romans do you see? Because um, I know you hinted at that, Nick. Maybe you want to talk about Romans 8 or like a different passage. Um, and we can mm-hmm. kind of look at like the broad context of this debate. Does that work for you? Yeah, sure. All right, I'm um, going to pop out real quick, um, and I'll pop right back in, but just go ahead, Nick. I'll keep it rolling. All right, cool. Um, so what we see, and if we move down a little bit, you have 18 through 25, but you even have the language here. Um, we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit, verse 23. Um, and it's also um, powerful to recognize that creation is seen through an apocalyptic lens, or uh, the cosmos is seen through an apocalyptic lens. That's what I mentioned earlier on the conversation. You got the language of, for the Christian waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. I, I'll translate that as sons of God. For the children, the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And of course, my first thought is, who subjected it? Now, we're not told. And it's, people like to talk about this being a divine passive. And it's like, well, okay, but who's the one subjecting creation to futility? And you have the father doing that in some texts you know, that using that verb, but also you have Jesus doing that in some text, that's the Philippians three. And so my thought is, well, God does it, but is it God, the father, God, the son, or God, the spirit? My answer is, well, we're not told. And that's kind of the, that's where I mentioned the ambiguity or the the flexibility of the term God when it relates to father, son, and spirit. Um, 
but we have the first fruits of the spirit. We grow in, inwardly as we wait for adoption. But then I, I, I think the verses in verse 26, Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and following is really instructive. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we offer that very spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. So I, already the spirit is given sort of a primary kind of agency here as the one who intercedes. So that word will become important, helps us, but even seems to pray with us. You know, it seems to kind of give us words to speak, kind of empower us. So the spirit is an empowering force. And God, who searches hearts in verse 27, knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So again, the will of God and the spirit's intercession are tied together. Um, and then verse 28, you get this very interesting verse. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. And already the, the language here is complex because there's a verb here. Um, all things work together, but who works them together, right? Who's the one working all things together? And some later manuscripts add God there, but it's not clear who that is. Who it's referring to, again, the flexibility of God language, right? Um, in Romans 8, 28, my guess is, and I would argue this very strenuously, is that more than likely, because the Spirit's the one doing the intercession and the one who's the last um, specific agent, it makes sense that the spirit's the one that works all things together for good with those who love God. And so the Holy Spirit here is the one doing those things in Romans 8, 28, not the father, because it'd be awkward to say God works all things for those who love God. It seems a little repetitive, but the spirit's the one who's doing all the intercession, interceding for us, helping us in our weakness, adopting us as children, bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God, helping us, to put to death the deeds of the body, if we do it with the spirit, that harmonious synergistic language, that makes best sense taken that the spirit works all things together for good with those who love God. And I'm, I'm being a little paraphrastic with the verse just because, you know, just for the sake of time. Um, but then who are called according to his, called according to a purpose for those whom he foreknew, then he kind of goes on to talk about being conformed to the image of his son. Um, and then, but I, I think it, taking Romans 8.28 as the spirit is the one who works all these things together, um, for those who or with those who love God um, testifies to the idea that the spirit is the primary mover in the Christian's life and that um, the working of the spirit puts the spirit on the same par as the father with distinction because the spirit's doing the things that the father is not doing it's not to say the father couldn't do it I don't know I don't have the mind of the spirit like that I don't know those things but when you have the spirit doing things for us and with us and through us and in us to bring us in right relationship with God, then that tells us what the nature of the spirit is, what the spirit does and what the father does. Um, and then, you, of course, you have language in Romans 1, uh, 8, 31 and following, you know, who will separate us from the love of Christ. But then you have language of uh, God's love as well. You know, for example, Romans 8, 39, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the love, that divine apocalyptic holy love is wrapped up in God and the Father and wrapped up in, in the Father and the Son. You, know, you don't get the love of the Father without the love of the Son and the, the working of the Son. Um, in verse 32, we go back to that chiastic structure. He who did not withhold his own Son, hold him close, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also give us everything else? And then the Son does also intercession for us. Who is to condemn it is Christ who died or rather was raised, who is also at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us as the spirit intercedes for us. And so it seems to me that a Trinitarian reading of say Romans eight and Paul generally speaking about specifically Romans eight, just for the sake of time and focus um, makes best sense of the evidence, makes best sense of the passage and directly brings um, that age old debate of how these persons work into right relationship. The purpose at the end of the day is not having right doctrine. It's not, some salvation first gospel it is holiness it is holy, holiness in the spirit by the son from the father and that holiness is something i think we'll preach and is vitally needed in our churches and in our lives so that uh, we could go further but i think romans 8 is probably the best text just for the big picture mm -hmm. you know the big scope of things where you see all three persons working um perfectly harmoniously with distinction and then flexibility you know there's like i said that god Language is flexible when talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, and Paul doesn't seem as discriminatory as some people might like him to be when it yeah, comes to that language. 
that's helpful, Nick. And I appreciate you kind of spelling out all of Romans eight. And it is interesting. Like, as you read the passage, like I never really thought about thinking about it the way you do, but when you think about it, like with the Trinity in mind, think about these, like these divine beings, like working together, like it makes a whole lot of sense of like what's going on in the passage. And like, why is it going from a God, the spirit to Jesus? It's like, well, there's a Trinity. Um, it makes a lot of sense. So the last thing I'd love to talk about, Nick, is like, how are we going to, how do we frame this debate? Like we have like the Trinity and we have Paul and his thoughts, like how are we going to frame this debate? And, and the difficult aspect of, of a, tr- toward a, uh, a Trinitarian reading of the, the New Testament or Paul in specifics is we need to be, um, we need to be continually, we need to continually desire to be surprised by the text, right? That the text um, is a foreign, powerful thing that has really no interest in our, our feelings. The text is, but the text also desires to be interpreted. And also I think in, in, in terms of scripture, God desires to speak to us through the text, empower us, challenge us, convict us, you know, all those sorts of things. And so focusing on, on framing the debate, um, first and foremost, we need to have a, a reference that is uh, desiring what the text says. And I'm not talking about having uh, identical understandings of the text. I'm talking about having the mindset that the text has authority in our lives, that, has, that it has the power to speak into our lives, to challenge us and correct us and and nuance our thoughts and all that sort of stuff. Um, but also uh, framing the debate about Paul, about the Trinity in the New Testament means that we need to be aware of the baggage we bring to the text. And I'm saying that as a Christian, un- uh, unequivocally, I am a Christian, I'm Baptist pastor. Um, but I think being aware of what we bring to the text is the first step of being humble with the text. Mm. Um, being willing to go, no, I, I mean, I, I, I wrote a book and now I disagree with like a quarter of what I wrote in my book. <laughs> I have to throw a quarter of that out. I just don't agree with it anymore. And that's just, you know, that's life. You know, you learn and you grow, hopefully. Um, but something just framing the debate is ultimately, I think we need to frame it in terms of humility as Christ did, having the same mindset of Christ to get, you know, who was humble and, and acted in that way, but also um, being willing to see that maybe the creeds, the later formulations, the later debates, you know, whether it's Athanasius or Origen or all these other church fathers or even debates in our day um, are indebted to the text. We are indebted as recipients to the text. We're heirs, you know, so to speak. You know, our, our Heavenly Father has given us the text of Scripture to deal with. And so um, framing the debate in terms of uh, humility and humbleness, framing the debate in terms of, um, of awareness of the authority of the text, but also um, being aware of the limits, both of creeds and of what you can get from the text. Was Paul a Trinitarian in the modern analytic propositional sense of how some systematic theologians talk? No. Was Paul a Trinitarian in the sense of everything he says only makes sense in a Trinitarian way? Yes. And, it's, and Paul, and the, the joke is that Paul you you without Paul you don't have a council of Nicaea but Paul is not giving the council of Nicaea everything they need so you need to go to say the gospel of John and do kind of theological integration exegetical work in, in John and Hebrews to kind of get a fully or view of the New Testament teaching on this but Paul gives us uniquely uh, a vision of, of of Israel and of God and of spirit and Christ but also how he ties that with resurrection and holiness and sanctification um, which is unique, uniquely Pauline. He also ties it together with the church specifically um, and spirited gifting, you know, char- the charismatic gifts and stuff like that. Um, so just being aware that the Trinity is not a, a football to be punted around, but the Trinity seems to be at the heart and center of what Paul is getting at, but also that the Trinity touches on so many different debates in, in certain ways, but not in ways we often expect. So uh, just a quick example, uh, I mentioned them already, spiritual gifts. The, the Trinity seems to be deeply involved in spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, in, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. I'm not going to get into the text, but just I'll, I'll invite people to go read that. But you have the Spirit giving sovereign gifts. You have the Son being involved in that, the Lord. And then you have the Father being involved in that. And, and throughout that whole chapter, you see that gifts are given from a Trinitarian perspective with a Trinitarian structure. In the same way we see that sanctification, holiness, and salvation are taught in Romans 8 in a Trinitarian framework, a Trinitarian outlook. And so... Having a Trinitarian outlook on, say, spiritual gifts 
um, is quite necessary because otherwise Paul's vision of spiritual gifts, even if someone's a cessationist or something like that, um, Paul's vision of spiritual gifts does not make sense without the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't make sense without uh, a, a robust Christology, a robust view of the Father, and a insanely dynamic and sovereign view of the Holy Spirit, because um, the Spirit's ultimately the one who gives the gifts in the first place. And so uh, that's why I think uh, framing the debate is important, but also recognizing the limits of creeds and the limits of, of what we have and being, at the end of the day, humble with what we do have. And I think humbly that there's a very strong case to be made for a doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. And specifically in Paul, and specifically uh, in Romans chapter eight, but that's that's kind of my general thoughts on that. Mm, okay, that's really helpful, Nick, and I appreciate like the importance that you're emphasizing of like realizing like, hey, there's a debate here. So like, we have to like be humble about this, and we have to understand like there's different views, and we have to understand that like when we're asking questions about Paul, we're dealing with someone that lived two thousand years ago, so he isn't thinking the same way that like the analytic philosopher today is thinking like the modern theologian. I think that's a super important distinction because I think sometimes in these debates, we want to think that like they were thinking the same exact way we did. So we can have like our arguments and like it can fit well with our theories. Like, oh, here's Paul being like a social Trinitarian right here. Um, but you're showing like, hey, like we have to understand like the world that Paul lived in. And it's important to remember that when we're in this debate. Amen. That's, that's exactly right. Paul was not an analytic theologian, but he says enough to make them mad and enough to give them joy. <laughs> yeah um nick i really enjoyed this conversation do you have anything else you want to share about like paul and the trinity or anything like that before we wrap up uh an excellent book um and I, i've not read his section on romans 8 specifically because I, I have my own thoughts and i didn't want to uh accidentally miscite him or plagiarize him but it's wesley hill um paul and the trinity out of i want to say it's erdman's erdman's publishing it was about maybe five years ago or so fantastic book um, takes on the issue of subordinationism in the Trinity and Arianism and kind of theological interpretations and the role of creed and, and all that sort of stuff. A fantastic book, um, looks at a lot of uh, key texts, um, looks at the role of the spirit as well, although the spirit's not as fundamental to his argument as I wish it was. Um, but a fantastic book that's readable, um, that is not simplistic, but it is easy to read. Um, that's highly conversant in critical scholarship, evangelical scholarship, church history, systematics. Uh, Wesley Hill's book, Paul and the Trinity, is by far, I think, just a, an excellent, an excellent book on, on the subject, um, written um, by a really good and awesome New Testament scholar. Mm, well, I encourage people to check that out. Um, Nick, do you want to like share a little bit about like what you're doing? Um, obviously, get that New Testament Theologist channel. I remember when back when it was like a little baby channel. Now it has 1.07K subscribers. Woo! Um yeah, what, tell me, like, what, what are you doing? Like, what's your work? Like, what do you do? And, like, what are you working on right now? So, uh, with, with that channel, um, my goal is to, uh, I have a series on women in ministry I'm very slowly working on, interviewing a bunch of people. Uh, I want to do more work on Paul and the Trinity, kind of like what I did here, but maybe in a more um, compact way, you know, kind of Romans 8 and the Trinity, stuff like that. Um, been talking to my patrons and asking them, do they want you know, um, like Romans, the whole book of Romans, exegesis, line by line. They're like, eh, maybe, but they, I think they want more topical videos, you know, more specific, you know, focus videos on things, on subjects like in Paul and New Testament stuff. So I'll probably be doing that. Um, working on uh, a video on Paul and the Trinity, generally speaking, working on uh, oh, man, all, all sorts of things. But yeah, that, that channel is, is shocked me how fast that's grown. It's, like at a thousand plus right now, not, not much more than a thousand, like a thousand seventy or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's awesome. Uh, my patrons are awesome and it's, it's, it's a fun little experience. But yeah, just working on Paul and the Trinity, uh, probably start doing stuff on my PhD work too. Um, universalism and, and hell and second temple Judaism and kind of those sorts of questions. That'll probably start coming up on the channel quite a bit more um, as time goes on. Um, yeah, stuff like that. Trying to avoid chasing clickbait. <laughs> And doing uh, videos that are less likely to get millions and millions of views and just do things that I think are, are relevant to uh, people honestly seeking um, God's word. Mm -hmm. Well, Nick, I think that's something I really value about your channel is like when I've looked at like what you're doing, like I was looking through it right now as you were talking, like I'm like, these aren't just clickbait things. Like you're just looking at important topics in your mind and things that people value and you're just trying to like explore them. And like you're very thoughtful in the way you do it. You're not just like putting out random things. Um and yeah, so like I really value that with your channel. I think you're doing a great job with that and not just being like, oh, look here. 
Jesus proved, Trinity proved, goodbye. Um, anything like that. So yeah, I think it's awesome, Nick. So I encourage people to it's check out Nick's channel. It's dishonest to do that. It's infrastructure dishonest to do that. And I see people doing that all over the place. I'm like, guys, like, don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't don't oversell something. And I think at the end of the day, don't don't you don't have to oversell something for it to be true. Mm, yeah. Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you and your work. Uh, the channel, the New Testament Theologist, is going to be linked here. So if you're on YouTube, just click the little at. It's either in the description or the title. I have to make up my mind on what I'm going to do. Um, but go check it out. Subscribe. It's going to be huge. Um, yeah, Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me, brother. I always appreciate it. All right. Have a good one, and God bless everyone. We will catch, we will catch you next time. Peace out.